0: Welcome to the Wellspring Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wellspring Church in Hudsonville, Michigan. We pray you are blessed as you listen to this teaching from God's Word. Amen. Father, we love you deeply, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what you would like to speak to each of us this morning, individually, but as a church, Lord. Help us, Lord, to draw closer to you, to become more like Christ as a result of uh, your word that's uh, going to be spoken this morning, Father, and that your Holy Spirit promises to implant in our hearts God, if we're receptive to that. So speak to us this morning through the power of your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we continue to look at the final words of Peter, Second um, Peter chapter three. These are his final words that we have recorded. Uh, it's believed that he died shortly thereafter writing this book. And he's focusing on the second coming of Christ, that is when Peter thought about the things that he wanted to leave his readers with, what he wanted to communicate to the church, the final words were in regards to spurring us to remember that Christ is coming back and what that means for us. Some of you may remember back in 2011, there was a pastor from California, his name was Harold Camping. Uh, And he predicted that the second coming of Christ was going to be on May 21st of that year of 2011. Uh, He got quite a following and lots of donations, so much so that he put up 5,000 billboards across the nation uh, declaring that Jesus Christ was coming back on May 21st. Here's one of those billboards, Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011, cry mightily unto God, Jesus is coming, he was predicting, he was saying. Of course, May twenty first, two thousand eleven came and went, and know Jesus, and so somebody rented out this board, this billboard, to put in its place. <laughs> that was awkward. Afterwards, I became I became curious uh, regarding this guy because I, I was tempted to just mark him off as a shyster, but. The problem is that shysters don't normally predict something that's so easily going to be disproved so quickly. Uh, Shysters aren't necessarily going, I mean, they're covert in their operation, right? So they they don't want to predict something that's immediately going to be disproved if they don't really believe it. So I thought, this guy must really believe it. Let me me check into this guy. And sure enough, he he was an older man, and uh, he seemed very sincere. He seemed like he really did believe that the second coming of Christ was going to happen on May 21st of 2011. In fact, his, his daughter said that uh, he was devastated uh, after Jesus did not come back, so much so that she believes that's the reason that he shortly thereafter had a stroke and within two years died. The thing that Pastor Camping, where he went wrong, uh, was neglecting the fact that the Bible clearly says in regards to the timing of Christ that, that no one knows. In fact, look at verse 10 there, the beginning of verse 10 in 2 Peter 3. Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Uh, Peter's referring to a teaching that Jesus had given he and the disciples in Matthew 24, where Jesus used the analogy of uh, his second coming as a thief would come to a house to rob or steal. He he doesn't announce it. He doesn't call uh, the owner of the house in advance and say, hey, I'm going to come tonight, so be prepared. No, he he comes uh, at a time that's least expected. No one knows uh, the time, uh, it will not be announced beforehand is, is the point that Scripture gives us with certainty. And yet, Scripture does give us certain signs that we can look at, uh, certain signs to look for, to discern the timing as it's quickly approaching. And that's what Peter does here, he gives us uh, one sign, we looked at these verses last week, but let's look at it again in verses 3 and 4 where he gives us one sign to look for in regards to uh, the hastening of Christ, when Christ will come back uh, as it gets nearer. He says this, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it was since the beginning of creation. Here he says, in the last days, one of the signs you can look for is there will be an increase in scoffers, people that are mark- mocking this teaching that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth. Uh, and furthermore, they will, there will be an increase in scoffing those of us who still believe that, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, those of us who believe that there will be a day when he will come back to earth as a second time, this time as conquering King. Peter says it's one of the things to look for, one of the things to keep an eye out for, uh, to know that the days are, uh, the day is becoming nearer when Christ will return Is there will be an increase in scoffers and mocking of that that faith. I remember my grandma was talking to one of my relatives who was a teenager at the time and he must have not been walking with the Lord and she said, "Uh, remember son, Jesus is coming. And I remember him saying, oh, I've heard that all my life. Uh, And he had heard it all his life. In fact, she had heard it all her life. Her mom had heard it all her life, on and on throughout the generations. We've all heard it all our life. Um, Peter says here that because of this, because it seems like God is being slow, uh, that people will start scoffing and doubting, um, even if possible, the very elect. But Peter does tell us one reason, and probably the primary reason, That Christ has not come back. We're going to be skipping all over in various verses here in this chapter. Look at verse 9, where Peter gives us the primary reason that Christ has not come back yet. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Here Peter says, It's not that he's slow, it's not that he's indifferent, it's not that he's changed his mind, rather, he is patient. Patient with who? Patient with unbelievers. Here Peter's reflecting on the fact that God desires uh, all to come to repentance. He desires everybody to be ready. And so here we see that he's reflecting on the fact that God is not just coming as fathers for those who are ready now. He's not just coming for those believers to Translate them into heaven to live for eternity with him. uh, He's actually coming also as judge. He's coming as judge. And the reason Peter points to that he has not come yet is that there are people that are not ready for him to come as judge. He's giving those who reject him time to change their minds but he's also giving time for us believers to evangelize the lost, to participate in the building of God's kingdom. While Pastor Camping uh, was certainly wrong in trying to identify the date of Christ's return, uh, his heart was right in desiring to warn people that Christ was coming, and particularly to warn the unbeliever that Christ is coming to uphold Justice. He's coming as a judge. So, Peter's reflecting on the fact that when God, when God comes, He is the great judge. That the very nature of God is to uphold justice. God is the great judge of the universe. He's the highest authority in the universe. And out of His goodness and out of His righteousness, He must be a good judge. And a good judge upholds justice. Demands that payment for wrong be made. Demands that payment for wrongdoing be be paid. That's what a good judge does. I have a friend who I graduated high school with who is now a judge, and I meet with him periodically when I go back home, and he tells me one of the most difficult things about his position as a judge is that uh, he really feels compassion for many of the people that's brought before him, when he considers their, uh, the things that they have faced in life, the abuse that has been incurred on them and um, the, the situation of, of their household growing up, on and on, growing up in poverty and whatever, uh, <clears throat> he says they have committed a crime and he says, I have this tension in me, I, I, I just wish I could just let them go. I wish I could just say, okay, well, just slap them on the hand and don't do it again, not make them pay for their sins. It's out of his compassion for them. But he also knows that in order to be a good judge, he must uphold the law. Part of upholding the law is requiring that people pay for their crimes. The reason my friend is such a good judge is because he has both. He has compassion, love for people. He'd do anything to help people. And yet he also knows that his job is to uphold the law. And again, in upholding the law, people must pay for their crimes. And God has the same sentiment. His love, His patience, His kindness is extended to all people. But He also is the judge of all things. And He also upholds justice. And what Peter is saying is that God is giving time to, for people to accept the payment that God has already paid for their sins. That That the love... Proof that God is love is that He is giving us time to repent, that He's giving the unbeliever time to accept the payment that He paid for their sins on the cross. He's the great judge. He must sustain justice. People must pay for their crimes, but He has chosen to pay it for them. But you can only apply that payment through your faith in Him through your willing to receive the great gift of salvation. And so Peter is saying that out of God's love, he is being patient and hasn't returned. If everybody was saved in the world, Christ would come now. But they're not, thus he hasn't. We would not want a God that isn't just. We would not want the highest authority in all the universe to not be a just judge Because our universe would spiral into absolute chaos if justice wasn't upheld. Let me give you an example. Several years ago, I was on a mission trip in Honduras with my family, Wellspring, as many of you know, partner with a a couple down there, Andy and Carmen Castillo. They're Honduran themselves. They're missionaries, full-time missionaries. We support them. We go down Uh, every year of course we didn't this year because of covid but every year we go down and and the way it works is we go down to do a building project sometimes it's the bathrooms for a school it's always related to a a local public school Uh, sometimes it's a playground but anyways we do this so we can build a relationship with uh the principal the the teachers but even more so the parents of the students so then the, the parents of the students will allow the kids to come to vbs uh, and, and introduced them also to the local church there to share the gospel with. Uh, and so, we were on this work site one day, and <clears throat> somebody said we needed something from the store. And most of the guys were busy. Uh, I wasn't doing anything at the time. Uh, and so, I, I said, hey, I can, I can drive. I can drive uh, Carmen, the missionary wife, and Uh, to the store to get whatever it was that they needed, and so um, one of my kids and I, we got in the car with Carmen, the missionary wife, because she doesn't have her driver's license, and so we were driving to the store, and all of a sudden, I remembered I had left my wallet and my money back, uh, not at the work site, but at the place that we were spending the night, that we were staying nights at, and, and the hotel of sorts, and so anyways, I said to her, oh, I said, I forgot, I don't have any money. We need to run by... Uh, where we're staying so I can pick up my wallet. And she said, that's fine. It's not far out of the way. So we started driving t- there to pick up my wallet. And all of a sudden she said, but you do have your driver's license with you, don't you? Uh, and and I said, well, no, it's in my wallet too. I don't have money or my driver's license. And she really noticeably got excited. And she's like, oh, pastor, that's not good. And I thought she's overreacting a little bit. And I'm like, um, well, why? What's what's wrong? And she's like, if the police stop us and they find out you don't have a driver's license, we're in big trouble. Uh, And I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, well, what's the likelihood of the police stopping us? Um, (laughs) Yep, you know where I'm headed. And and then I said to her, well, what can they do? Even if they did stop us, what, what could they do? And she's like, pastor, the police here can do anything they want. They can demand you give them money or, since you don't have any, uh, then she took her right hand, put it over her left wrist, and she like, put you in jail. I'm like, you're kidding. She's like, yes. So, again, I was thinking, well, what's the chances? So, I turn down the street of the place where we're staying, and lo and behold, there is a checkpoint there. There are policemen that are stopping every car and at that moment, I got excited, she got excited, and we're both crying out to Jesus, Lord, help us. And sure enough, we got up We got up to the checkpoint, and I rolled down the window, and of course, I can't speak Spanish, and the policeman's talking to her, and they're exchanging dialogue, and all of a sudden, the police just belts out in laughter and then waves us on, and uh, and I, I asked her. I said, what, what, "What was that about? What did he say? What did he ask?" And she's like, uh, "They're asking if we had any firearms in our car." And uh, and I told him when I told him no, and that you were a pastor, he just laughed and told us to go. So, the Lord was protecting us. But the point is, is that Honduras, like other third world countries, they suffer from corruption and a lack of justice being upheld. When justice is not upheld, chaos ensues. It, people get hurt. A lack of justice empowers others to do whatever makes them feel good in the moment, in the time. Those police could have done whatever they wanted because no one was holding them accountable. The point is, God is the great judge because of His goodness, because of His righteousness, because of His love for humanity, because of His love for His creation. Order is maintained by the highest power of authority being a judge who upholds justice for the common good of society. One of the most wonderful attributes about our God is that He is just and that He uses His power to uphold justice. God's holiness, His righteousness, His goodness require Him to uphold justice. And it would be of no one's benefit for Him to do otherwise. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, Peter says, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So here, Peter says that by the same word that God spoke everything into existence, that at the second coming of Christ, that the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed. He'll go on later, and we'll talk about it next week, to say that there's going to be, he's going to form a new heaven and a new earth. But he also says here that God is coming uh, to be kept for a day of judgment, that He's the judge. That's what he means, that God is coming not just as Father to receive His his, his children, but He's coming as judge to uphold justice, to make sure that sins are, are paid for. Those who have offered or those who have accepted His free payment of sins by faith in Him, And what He accomplished on the cross will find Him as Father, but those who have not will find Him as a judge who demands that they pay for their sins. This is a strict warning, obviously. In other words, He's saying to unbelievers, don't think Christ is not coming back. Remember, He's patiently waiting. Remember, out of His love for humanity... He gave His life for you. Remember, justice requires a payment for sins. You can accept His offer or you can reject it. You can pay it for yourself. Paying it for yourself means eternal separation from God. It's referred to as hell in the Bible. We are not. We don't know a whole lot about hell. There's various things the Bible says about hell that We don't quite understand how they fit together, but what we do know is it is eternal separation from God. It's spiritual death. Just as we would not want a police force that doesn't uphold justice, neither would we want a God that doesn't uphold justice. One of the greatest theologians of our day, Wayne Grudem, writes this, As with the other attributes of God, this is an attribute for which we should thank and praise God. It may not immediately appear to us how this can be, since wrath seems to be such a negative concept. Viewed alone, it would arouse only fear and dread. Yet it is helpful for us to ask what God would be like if He were a God that did not hate sin. He would then be a God who either delights in sin or at least was not troubled by it. Such a God would not be worthy of our worship. For sin is hateful, and it is worthy of being hated. It is, in fact, a virtue to hate evil and sin. The point he's making is whoever's in power must hate injustice, and they must use their power to uphold it. If you're here this morning, you're watching online this morning, you've not received the free gift of God to pay for your sins. I mean, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. God has never changed. He's always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. But what He did do when man changed, when man fell into sin, uh, because of His great love for us, because of His desire to, to have an intimate relationship with us for all eternity, He chose to pay the penalty of our sins. Because for us to pay the penalty of our sins is eternal separation from Him. Because He loved us, He did not want that to happen. And yet God did not create robots either. It's up to us, it's up to you, it's up to me. Do we accept the free gift of God to pay the penalty of our sins or do we accept the fact that we pay it for ourselves by being eternally lost from His presence? Romans 5, 8-9, the Apostle Paul says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? And for the believer, there's reason to celebrate this morning. We have been freed from the judgment, the wrath of God. We no longer have to pay for our sins. Christ has done that once and for all. and We are eternally secure, and for that reason we're here worshiping Him adoring him, but also proclaiming to the unbeliever, your day's coming, judgment day's coming. Many people point to Christianity and say they, they, they can't believe in a God that would send anybody to hell. God says, I'll pay for it. If you deny such a great salvation, it's not his fault. It's your own. But we also see in verse 10, let's look at that verse again, because we also see that God as judge is coming back not just to judge the unbeliever, but He's also coming back to judge Christians as well. Let's read verse 10 again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Let's first talk about two words there in that verse, the words element and destroyed. The elements will be destroyed by fire. Now, this is a very interesting verse. This is a very prophetic verse because that word elements in the original Greek is referring to the smallest unit of matter. So the atom wasn't actually identified or or, or discovered back then, but there was a Greek word to denote the smallest possible unit of matter. That's the word that Peter uses there that we translate here, elements. Look at the word destroyed. That word destroyed has been a problem for translators because it actually doesn't mean destroyed. What it actually means is loosened. It's the same Greek word that Jesus used when he commanded that Lazarus be loosened of his garments. It's the same word that John the Baptist used when he uh, is said to have said that there's a man coming that his straps of his uh, sandals, I'm not even worthy to be, to unloose, to loosen or to free. And so, the problem is, is that if you were to render that verse exactly as the Greek uh, renders it, exactly as Peter wrote it, you would, you would come up with this, this. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be loosened or untied by fire. And so, most translators, uh, that's not incredibly sensical to the modern-day reader. What does he mean? The elements will be loosened. And so, the NIV translators here chose to use the word destroyed. Um, which gets about at the same thing, but not as in much precise detail. Because if you think about this, uh, if you think about the manner in which the atomic bomb works, the atomic bomb actually breaks open the atoms and loosens the energy, which causes a tremendous amount of heat that destroys everything in its path. And so it's very interesting to look at this, the manner in which that Peter wrote this, the elements, again, the, the smallest element of matter uh, is going to be loosened or untied uh, and it's going to create fire and that fire is going to destroy everything. It's exactly as the atomic bomb can do. Prior to the invention of the atomic bomb, nobody knew how the entire earth could be decimated in this manner Uh, And now we do. John Phillips, in his commentary, writes this. He says, this is one of the most remarkable prophecies in the entire Bible. An uneducated Galilean fisherman living nearly 2,000 years ago, writing into the Bible an accurate description of the nuclear age. He also foretold how the nuclear age will end with a big bang that will embrace both terrestrial and celestial spheres, spheres. So he's pointing out, I mean, he, he's fully convinced here that this is the prophecy, that this prophecy is talking about that this this earth will be destroyed one day by nuclear weapons. I mean, lots of people say it. It's utterly nonsensical to think that all these superpowers around the world could be making these nuclear warheads and then these these countries that are led by some pretty... Compromised intellectually, people maybe say it that way. I don't know, but these smaller countries that they seem like there's tyrants that are leading them, they're developing them. It's, it's nonsensical to think that we could have this mass of nuclear arms being built up uh, and at the same time, as Einstein said, prepare for peace. And so, it's highly possible. I, um, I'm not as convinced as John Phillips, but I, it does lend itself to be able to. Wow, this, this could actually be the manner in which this prophecy is fulfilled, that this earth, God will allow, uh, and Satan will wreak such havoc and chaos and animosity between countries that we are headed for a nuclear war uh, on a global scale, and that this could be part of the manner in which that God fulfills this prophecy when He returns, Look again there at the last phrase of verse ten. We're really picking this verse apart because it's an incredible verse. Notice there it says um, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Everything done in it will be laid bare or will be exposed. So we see here that not everything's going to be destroyed by fire; that there are going to be something that remains. Here, Peter's referring to the fact that God is coming back to judge the works of men. With particular focus to believers, the Apostle Paul gives us greater clarity in regards to this in 1 Corinthians 3. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day, the second coming of Christ, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. Notice that, but yet will be saved him herself, even though only as one escaping through the fires. So, here the Apostle Paul says that there, not everything's going to be burned up. There are going to be certain things that aren't being burned up. And he's using fire as a metaphor in this regard that the works of men are going to be tried by fire. Those things done for Christ will last. In other words, those things done for Christ will, those people that have worked for God who have worked to build his kingdom that have sacrificially lived their lives in this temporal world with an eternal perspective will receive rewards for the things they have done. The things they have done will not be burned up. They will be exposed so God the Father can recognize those things. And so God the Father, being the just God that he is, will justly give out rewards. Eternal rewards. What are these rewards? Rewards not a great clarity in Scripture. The Bible talks a lot about rewards for believers um, without describing exactly what they are. But we can be assured they are things of great desire, things of eternal significance. And so, really, the warning here is that while our eternal security is secure, that's what he meant here in verse 15 where he says, um, they will be saved themselves. How we live our life as Christians does affect our eternal experience. How we live our life as Christians does determine our eternal experience in heaven. I think there's going to be a lot of surprises in heaven for Christians. I think a lot of people that uh, they've been saved, they've been redeemed, they're, they're, they're longing for the return of Christ, and yet they spend all their time, their treasures, and their talents on temporal things, on things of this world, that when they get to heaven, the Apostle Paul says, there will be a loss of rewards. And you're probably sitting there thinking, I thought heaven was, uh, everybody was happy in heaven. They are. The Bible says there's uh, no sadness, there's no tears in heaven. There's certainly no jealousy, ungodly jealousy, there's no envy, covetousness, but it doesn't mean that everyone will have the same experience. In fact, we're told this in the Bible in regards to eternal, uh, the eternal state of the lost, that there are different experiences in hell. Revelations 20, Luke 12, both declare that. And so when we think about, a lot of people have, are uncomfortable with this. I get that. And some of you may be like, first I've ever heard of this. But it's clear in Scripture that there are rewards in heaven. And for a reward to be a reward, it must be something desirable. And it must be acknowledgeable, And it must be something that uh, we, we desire. And for some to get it and some to suffer loss not to get it, there is a difference. And it is somewhat of a mystery. So it's, it's hard to talk about it. It's hard to describe exactly what it looks like. And the other reason I think people are uncomfortable with it is because sometimes we view heaven as a socialist. Uh, We view heaven that, you know, it's going to be the same for everybody. You just get there, and then everybody is the same. Everybody has the same experience. Everybody has the same things, on and on and on. And again, it's a mystery. It's hard to describe. No sadness, no tears. By far, it's the most important thing. Just get there through faith in Christ. And yet at the same time, we are faced with this doctrine throughout the pages of Scripture regarding those who live their lives in such a way that is pleasing to God and live their lives in light of eternity, not in light of this temporal world, will receive things of great value that everyone wants. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, Store for yourselves up in heaven treasures where moth rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot steal, as opposed to things on earth that will become rusted, that moths will eat, that thieves sometimes steal. In other words, live your life in light of eternity. And it's really a remarkable thing to think about. And as I was going through the study, I personally was convicted. I mean, I think a lot about retirement. I mean. I'm 51 years old, and I know i got a long ways to go, Um, but it'll be here before I know it, and you know, you hear all these advertisements and all these things, financial planners, and make sure you prepare for for retirement, and I certainly want to do that, and I'm doing my best to do that, but I find myself thinking about it too much. I felt like convicted that, man, if I thought about storing my treasures up in heaven uh, like I do preparing for retirement, it would be much more sensical, wouldn't it? I mean, because I may, I, say I live 100 years, whoop de do compared to eternity forever and ever and ever, and that's what Jesus is saying, is look, think about it. Think about how you live your life. If you really believe this stuff, if you really believe in Christianity, and you really believe in the truth of scriptures, there is coming a day that all of us, everything we did for Christ in this life, we will not regret. We will shout Hallelujah of all the sacrifices that we felt like we made here on earth or that we did make for the kingdom. I think another reason a lot of people are uncomfortable with this teaching is because of uh, the wrong thinking that, well, it's the pastors, it's the missionaries, it's those people that are... Um, they're, they're the ones that's going to become, I, you know, I've got to quit my job and be in full-time ministry to get the, the, the rewards. And, and that's not the case because in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the talents. And he says what's going to be judged is the, based on what you were given and what you were called to do with what you were given. So it's not based on how much you do. It's not based necessarily on the amount of hours that you put in. It's what, what's God equipped you to do, given you as an individual in terms of time, treasures, and talents, and what's He calling you to do in regards to participating in the evangelization of the lost and the building up of His church. And that's the criteria. I'm going to be held a lot more accountable than the majority of you are because I am free to be in full-time ministry, thankful to your giving. There's going to be much more required of me in my time than the vast majority of you. Apostle Paul reflecting on this fact of rewards in heaven says in 2 Corinthians 5, so we make it our goal to please Him whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive. So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether, or go- whether good or bad. Think about that. So that each of us may receive what is due I mean, he's denoting the fact that it's okay to be motivated to work for the Lord in order to store up treasures in heaven. It's okay. It's a noble thing. I think another reason that people have a hard time with this idea of rewards is because they think, well, that's selfish ambition. Paul says here, no, it's not. We work hard for the Lord, certainly because we love him and we adore him and we want to cast our crowns at his feet. But we also do it because we like good things. And we can logically think about this. We can think about, man alive, I could spend all my time and energy amassing a great amount of wealth that's going to end up burning in the end. Or I can spend my passion and time and energy for eternal things that I will be able to enjoy in heaven forever. Again, not everyone's called to full-time ministry, but all are called to do something. Charles Spurgeon, during a time when his church was seeing great growth, there was just an influx of people, and he's a famous 19th century preacher in England, and he's referred to as the Prince of Preachers. He's a fantastic man, fantastic worker of the Lord, and there was a time when there were just so many people coming, and there were so many needs in the church. He stands up on the pulpit, and he says, look, some of you have been waiting forever, asking yourself, asking the Lord, what should I do? What's my gift and what's my calling? He says, this is the word of the Lord for you right now. Do something. <laughs> do something. And That's the message I would like to leave with you. Do something to support the building of the kingdom of God. To strengthen his church. For as Jesus said in Revelations twenty two twelve, 12, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Couldn't be more clearer than that, whether we like it or not. So Peter, here in his final words for the unbeliever, he says, look, Jesus is coming. Jesus has made the way for you to be eternally saved, Accept it. Prepare. He's coming. Not just as Father, He's coming as judge. His justice and upholding of justice is founded in His righteousness and goodness. He cannot deny His holiness. Therefore, He is coming as the great judge. Prepare. He's made a way. Accept it. And for the believer, Peter says, Jesus is coming. He's coming. Do the work of the Lord. Live in such a way as Paul says that it pleases him. Work diligently to prepare for the day that your judge, your righteous judge, comes. Your Savior, who has clothed you in the righteousness of Christ, comes, but also judges the works of men. May we be servants of the Lord. May we live with an eternal perspective of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Uh, We thank you, God, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you that it's not by works that we can boast. Uh, We thank you that we don't have the right to uh, feel better about ourselves and judge others and think we're better because of our works. God, we're so thankful, Lord, that our salvation is not based on works, that we've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that the cross has the final word. The cross screams redemption forgiveness, payment of sins. God, we're also thankful that you are a God of a judge, a judgment who upholds justice. Father, my prayer this morning, particularly is for anyone who doesn't know you, Lord. They may have questions in their mind, they can't figure things out, they can't rationalize things. I pray by the power of your spirit that they would bow their knees to you, that they would humble themselves acknowledging that they can't understand everything and they don't understand everything, but that they can know this one thing, that you love them and that you're coming back for those who are in Christ Jesus. May they be a part of that family of God. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Wellspring Church. For more information about Wellspring, please visit wellspringcc.org.